0: Oh, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Usher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the orchestra on Thursday, November second through Tuesday, the seventh, feature guest conductor Daniel Harding and the orchestra joined by the Chicago Symphony Chorus. The program includes overture to Monfred by Robert Schumann, Schicksalslied, the Song of Destiny by Johannes Brahms, and after intermission, a suite for large orchestra, The Planets by Gustav Holst. Here are Philip Husscher's program notes on Johannes Brahms' Schicksalslied for chorus and orchestra, a work lasting about 15 minutes. In the summer of 1868, Brahms joined several of his friends on an excursion to view the North Sea Naval Base at Wilhelmshaven. Our friend, usually so cheery, the conductor and composer Albrecht Dietrich later recalled, was silent and serious on the journey He told us how early that morning he had found Hildeling's poems in the bookcase and had been profoundly stirred by Hyperion's Song of Destiny. Later, as the group rested by the sea, they noticed Brahms sitting at a distance on the beach, writing. It was the first sketch for Schicksals, they Dietrich wrote. Brahms read Hildeling for the first time earlier that decade. Born in 1770, the same year as Beethoven, herdeling was a contemporary of the philosopher Hegel, his classmate at the University of Tübingen. Schiller became his friend and published his works. His poetry appeared in print for the first time in 1791. But... When Brahms picked up The Song of Destiny, Höldling was largely still unknown. His discovery is a 20th century phenomenon, largely due to the influence of Stefan Georg and Rainer Maria Rilke. Decades after Brahms, his poetry inspired several other composers, including Benjamin Britten, Karl Orff, and Kaya Saariaho. The novel Hyperion, the source of the Schicksal's lead, was published in two parts, in 1797 and 1799. Hirdling's subject was the contemporary Turkish oppression of the Greeks. The Song of Destiny is Hyperion's despondent reflection on the disparity between man's troubled life in the present and the ever-glorious image of ancient Greece. The opening of Brahms' Schicksalslied is one of the most inspired passages in all of his music. A glorious melody given to muted violins unfolds over dark chords and the quiet pounding of the timpani. Brahms marks it langsam und sehnsuchvoll, slowly and yearning, an unusually expressive direction from this most poised of composers. By the time the alto voices of the chorus finally enter, singing the first lines of the poem, we are deep in the heavenly, radiant world that Höldling depicts. Brahms sets the first two stanzas of the poem in simple yet rich four-part choral harmony, a hymn to celestial wonders. With a single pianissimo chord in the winds, however, the mood changes dramatically. The third stanza shifts from idle to fury and from E-flat major to C minor. The music rages and plummets into the vague abyss. At first, Brahms didn't know how the Schicksal's lead should end. Huddling leaves us at the abyss. Brahms, sensing that music and literature operate differently, returns to the calm beauty of his orchestral opening. The music is now in C major and reorchestrated. The solo flute has the grand, searching melody, and the original langsam und marking has been replaced by the simple Italian adagio. That instinct seemed right, but Brahms still wasn't satisfied, and he drafted a new ending that added the chorus intoning the first lines of the poem. He also considered asking the chorus simply to sing, ah, something like a drone. He quickly gave up that idea, but he worried that audiences wouldn't be prepared for a long instrumental ending to a choral work. And so, for the premiere, he insisted that orchestral postlude be printed in the program after the last lines of Höldling's poem. Brahms continued to struggle over his decision to return to the luminous music with which the piece began. "'I simply say something the poet doesn't say,' he finally wrote to a conductor friend. But this unexpected touch neither alters nor contradicts Höldling's point of view. Instead, it simply leaves us with an image of Brahms sitting alone on the shore of Wilhelmshaven contemplating the tragic fate of man.' The Schicksalslied remains among the least performed of Brahms' major works. Three years after the premiere, Theodore Thomas, who was one of Brahms' greatest champions, gave the first U.S. performance in Boston, but he never programmed it with the new Chicago Symphony Orchestra he founded in 1891. More than six decades passed before the orchestra turned to the Schicksalslied. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Schicksalslied, The Song of Destiny by Johannes Brahms. And now on to Gustav Holst's suite for large orchestra, The Planets, the performance time around 51 minutes. In 1930, the American astronomer Clyde W. Tombaugh took a series of photographs at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, that confirmed his discovery of Pluto, the ninth major planet of the solar system. By then, Gustav Holst's The Planets had already achieved such immense popularity with symphony audiences that Holst felt no need to add a new Pluto movement to make the music conform to science. That turned out to be a wise decision. On August 24, 2006, the International Astronomical Union declassified Pluto to a minor planet, returning the solar system to the one Holst had set to music and creating a new verb in the process, to Pluto, to demote or devalue someone or something, voted the 2006 Word of the Year by the American Dialect Society. In the 1920s, The swift, overwhelming success of the planets both surprised and irritated Holst, much as Bolero would come to embarrass Ravel, who insisted that it wasn't his best work. But the public was captivated by the combination of music and astrology. The music of the spheres made manifest. Theodore Thomas gave the U.S. premiere with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra on New Year's Eve 1920, just six weeks after the first complete performance in London. It was Clifford Bax, the brother of composer Arnold Bax, who introduced Holst to astrology shortly after they met in 1913. Like countless people since, from true scientists to supermarket tabloid fans, Holst was fascinated by the movements of the heavenly bodies and their influence on everyday people. Before beginning work on the planets in 1914, Holst wrote to a friend, I only study things that suggest music to me. Recently, the character of each planet suggested lots to me, and I have been studying astrology fairly closely. It's a pity we make such a fuss about these things. On one side, there is nothing but abuse and ridicule, with the natural result that when one is brought face to face with overwhelming proofs, there is a danger of going to the other extreme, whereas, of course, everything in this world is just one big miracle, or rather, the universe itself is one. During his two years of work on the planets, Holst became, in his own words, a skilled interpreter of horoscopes and privately admitted that casting horoscopes for friends was a pet vice. The planets took two years to complete because of Holst's teaching commitments at St. Paul's Girls' School. He could only compose on weekends and during the August vacation when he locked himself in the stifling soundproof room of the school's new music wing and wrote without interruption. Holst had long shown an interest in exotic subjects. He became interested in Hindu literature and philosophy as a student, taught himself Sanskrit, and set his own translations of Sanskrit text to music. It was his settings of verses from the Rig Veda that introduced Holst's music to Clifford Bax in 1913 and, in turn, inspired Bax to bring up the subject of astrology. At the time of the first complete performance of The Planets in 1920, Holst was nervous that the public would read too much into his new work, These pieces were suggested by the astrological significance of the planets. There is no program music in them, neither have they any connection with the deities of classical mythology bearing the same names. If any guide to the music is required, the subtitle to each piece will be found sufficient, especially if it can be used in a broad sense. When the score was published the following year, Holst was careful to give it the plain subtitle Suite for Large Orchestra, again suggesting that the planets should be considered as music first and last. Holst's daughter, Imogen, a musician herself, remembered that at the first private performance in 1919, The audience felt certain that the first movement, Mars, the Bringer of War, with its horrible pounding rhythm, ungainly march, in an unmarchable 5-4 time, and noisy brass fanfares, was a description of the war that was still going on. But, in fact, Holst had finished Mars early in the summer of 1914, before the outbreak of war that August. After two mechanized wars, Imogen later wrote, it would be easy to take it for granted that Mars had been commissioned as background music for a documentary film of a tank battle, but Holst had never heard a machine gun when he wrote it, and the tank had not yet been invented. Even in 1919, peace could not have sounded more seductive than it does in the second movement, Venus, with its celestial wind chords, calm harp-strumming, and floating violin melodies. Mercury begins as a scherzo of Mendelssohnian likeness, though it includes instruments like the bass oboe Mendelssohn never heard, and eventually reaches a climax that is very modern in its orchestral ingenuity. Holst's choice of instrumental colors is always keen, a reminder that when his own musical schooling disappointed him, he read Berlioz's exhaustive classic treatise on instrumentation from cover to cover. With its dancing tempo and cheerful tune, Jupiter is a friendly and inviting planet. At the first rehearsal of this movement, the cleaning women in the corridors of Queen's Hall reportedly put down their mops and began to dance. A few years later, Holst brought Jupiter down to Earth by turning its big central melody into the patriotic anthem, I vow to thee my country. Saturn is remote and mysterious, suggesting the slow but relentless march of time and making humankind seem very small and insignificant. Holst said it was his favorite movement. Uranus, the magician, throws out a handful of notes, then continues to toss them around the orchestra, all the while inventing new themes, combining materials, switching meters, and sidestepping any firm sense of central key. Neptune, the planet farthest away from the Earth, offers an astonishing glimpse of eternity. Holst's music, characterized not by melody or harmony, but by unforgettable chilling sounds and colors, owes much to Debussy, although Holst claimed he wasn't a fan. He admired The Afternoon of a Fawn, liked The Nocturnes, was never very happy about anything else, and hated *Pelléas et Mélaison. Holst took the idea of a wordless female chorus from Debussy's Sirens, Sirenes, but puts it off stage. Beginning Pianissimo, the original manuscript suggested four Ps, it concludes this astrological tour with a single measure of music, repeated each time more quietly until the sound is virtually lost in silence. A footnote. Despite Stock's enthusiasm and its huge popularity elsewhere, the Planet did not immediately become a repertoire favorite in Chicago. It was played just three more times under Stock's baton, and then not at all for 37 years. Although Holst conducted the Chicago Symphony himself at the University of Michigan's annual May Festival in 1923 and 1932 in several of his lesser scores, he never led the orchestra in his most celebrated work. Program notes by Philip Husher on Gustav Holst's The Planets. I'm Richard Caparella, thanks for listening.